Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Metacast by Novik, a podcast in which we explore the business and future of video games. I'm Aaron Bush, co-founder of Novik and your host today. And I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Raf Koster, a legendary game designer, author, and currently founder and CEO of Playable Worlds. Raf, thank you so much for joining. Oh, my pleasure. Looking and I also to want to thank um, all of, you know, thank our Novik team and community on Discord uh, for suggesting a bunch of questions. Naturally, uh, with the details of Playable world still being largely unannounced. We respectfully won't dig as deeply into that today. Although I still have a few questions and we'll be spending most of our time talking about game design, MMOs, and the challenges of building digital worlds. So first off, Raf, you've accomplished a lot in your career so far. Ultima Online, Star Wars Galaxies, many other games. But looking back um, what is the the one thing that you're most proud of from your career as a game designer so far, and why? Oh, you know, I'm probably proudest of games that most of the world has never seen um, because they never came out, or you know, they're sitting here in in prototype form. I'm probably proudest of things like not the games but the impact the games have had on people because when you look at the actual games i go oh, look at all that stuff that was busted <laughs> um <laughs> i'm probably proudest of uh a lot of the writing that i i think has ended up having a an impact in terms of helping other game designers do what we do and i think you know that is probably in some ways the actual lasting work, right? Not not necessarily what you do, but what others do given what you did, if that makes sense. Um, so in some ways, you know, the, the books and things like that probably will last longer than the games. Mm. And that's a, a great segue to the next question, actually. A bunch of people at Novik are grateful for your book, Ethereophon for Game Design, which you know, influence their development and passion as game designers. Um, and, you know, a couple of people on the team were wondering, how has your theory of fun changed over the past decade or so since publishing? If you were to revisit the book today, what are some things that you might um, include that you didn't before? So, you know, it's actually closing in on two decades, <laughs> actually. Um, yeah, I think uh, it's, what, 22? So that means the book is 18 years old. I actually did do a revised edition at the 10th anniversary. It came out in um, 2015, I guess, so technically the 11th. Um, and uh, it in that, I think the, the biggest changes, other than updating the science, were probably looking at the ways in which people play games that aren't necessarily for fun. Things like playing games for meditation or playing games for um, uh, almost like, a, well, competitive sport. Competitive sport is often not particularly fun. It's grueling and exhausting. Um, you know, so other ways to play games that aren't necessarily about having that sensation of fun through learning, which is what I really talked about in the book. Um, if anything, over time, more and more science more and more um theory really as well has has sort of converged on pretty similar ideas right um a lot of the science around things like deliberate practice for example wasn't really widely known at the time that i did the original draft of the book and so as stuff like that has come out it's uh in most ways reinforced quite a lot of what theory of fun says um you know, there have been some lovely nuances added over the years uh, by folks who've sort of run with the ball in, in more directions. In particular, I think of uh, Aaron Hoffman John's notion of Sophia as a concept around what, what is the step beyond just fun as learning um, that I thought was actually a really, really lovely uh, elaboration. Um, honestly, I wish there were more books about fun out there. Uh, there's, it's sort of, it's sort of weird that there haven't been more, uh, written over the years. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, for the Novik audience, I would say stop reading theory of fun and, and go read postmortems instead. Cause it probably has more directly applicable lessons to, uh, what I think a lot of the Novik, um, 
audiences particularly interested in around, you know, the, the future of online worlds. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. Um, <laughs> another question, you know, from the team was, you know, not just like looking back, what would you change or add to the books, but um, just recognizing that the industry, I mean, currently, you know, is evolving quite a bit, but that it always has. And you've been someone who has successfully evolved as a game designer over um, a good stretch of time. And so I'm, I'm curious, um, like, how do you recommend evolving as a game designer? Um, you know, as, you know, gaming business models and platforms and technologies change, like, how, how do you recommend embracing all of this change and upskilling to better navigate the future? How have you done it in the past? And how would you recommend people um, think about that for the future? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think... It's it's really easy to always fall back on what you know, right? And you know, it's it's a human tendency. We all do it. We all uh, reach for whatever tools were already on our workbench. I think it's important to embrace the idea that you want to always be adding new tools to your workbench. To to embrace the idea that you can't stand pat and that the tools you have are enough. Um, so, as a game designer, what I uh, typically recommend is. Um, reading widely in varying fields because those things end up giving you new tools for the workbench, right? You start seeing analogies between different areas of study that uh, help illuminate problems or help give you different angles or views on things. Um, uh, you know, Ultima Online was partly inspired by MIT robotics experiments putting light sensors on roller skates and a servo to drive them around to make artificial cockroaches, right? That doesn't sound like it would have led to a core concept in Ultima Online, but it did. Um, you know, galaxies had a lot of influence from reading in um, network science. Graph theory in network science was a core element of what shaped the design of Star Wars Galaxies. So, you know, you never know where something like that is going to end up getting you to push outside of your box, right? And kind of, you know, explore an area that you're not comfortable with. I think um, always being willing to try out whatever the new platforms or at least dig into them because platforms force you to question and relearn, right? It's, it's a good thing to find yourself in a situation where your old tools don't work, right? Um, uh, the best analogy I can think of is actually when I'm playing guitar, right? Um, uh, tuning the instrument to random weird new tunings means you forget all of, it's not that you forget, all of your old fingering, all of your old chords don't work. And it makes you reapproach the problem. Hey, I want to get some music out of this, or I want to get uh, a, an arrangement of this particular tune. By having changed the way you address the problem, you find new solutions, right? You find different ways in. Um, to me, that's why things like uh, all of the writing and exploring I've done around game formalism, right? It's because. I've been trying to find the music theory that is underneath playing the guitar, right? Because if you master the music theory, then the instrument won't matter as much. You can come at it in different ways. Um, and that's really what game design theory is about, is trying to find what's, what's the equivalent of music theory that makes games work. And if you're chasing down that, it's, you know, it's a bottomless pit, right? And so mm -hmm. it forces you to always be, you know, questioning your previous assumptions and figuring out new ways to do things. So, you know, it's going to be boring, but the answer is try to always be learning, put yourself in unfamiliar situations. Yeah, I think that's, that's great advice. Um, and, you know, on, I would imagine that, you know, other people, you know, at the tops of other fields too, would actually give really similar advice to study, to study widely, because a yeah. lot of, you know, understanding the fundamentals of a lot of a lot of areas, you know, whether it's psychology <laughs> or, you know, um, you know, computer programming, whatever it is, it all it all connects together in really interesting ways. Just to double click on that question a little bit. Um, is there anything that you're studying right now or running across right now that you think is particularly interesting or, you know, as being productive to your your job building games and in a way that maybe others wouldn't think? 
lately, I've been spending a lot of time revisiting economics questions. Um, mm. uh, you know, um, you know, it's prompted by a lot of what's going on with Web three. Uh, it's prompted by doing economy design on the game we're working on. But it's also prompted by the real world. It's prompted by um, looking at things like, uh, oh, I don't know, Piketty's book on economics, right? Um, and um, stuff like that and saying, okay, what are analogies that we can draw between, you know, Gini coefficients and index in the real world and um, political instability? And what does that mean for balancing soccer, right? Uh, like literally connecting it that way because um, uh, I've basically been looking at the way in which, uh, I guess in economic terms, we'd call it wealth, right? Looking at accumulation within a given context, what are the dynamics that cause it, right? Um, what are the economic structures that end up affecting how it um uh, develops how quickly, how slowly, you know, it, in, in games, we work against things like runaway inflation in the games, for example. Right. So, for, uh, you know, I think many of us who worked in MMO economies called out that Axie was headed for very serious economic troubles sometime around the, you know, middle of last year, we said, Oh, this is, this is going to go bad. Right. Um, and it's because we were reaching back to some of those core principles. Um, I think the the interesting thing is where it starts affecting game balance questions, where where it starts uh, shaping how we tackle things like how do you design your drains? How many currencies should you have? What is the acquisition impact of having a high Gini coefficient in your game? Right, like if your wealth distribution goes Pareto, does that make the game have worse newbie conversion? And the answer appears to be yes. Right. Um, so then, let's talk about you know I've, I've been doing things like building models with if there's only ten coins in the game, what happens under these different situations? Right. In order to try to arrive at sort of general principles. Gotcha. Um- that's super interesting, and we'll we'll dig more into some of your thoughts about um, economies and digital worlds more later. But before we get too deep into to the weeds, <laughs> I do want to talk about playable worlds for a moment. Um, and as I said, I know we can't go into too much depth, but I do want to ask, you know, just for starters, what is the mission of playable worlds, and what what can you tell us about what you're building right now? I would say that the mission of playable worlds is to fulfill the potential of what online worlds can be. Right. That that's that's what we want to do. Um, now there's a lot of possible potentials. <laughs> um, so we're, we're obviously chasing the potentials that we see. I would like online worlds to be, oh, a place where different groups come to understand one another, a place where we can experiment and work together to solve group coordination problems that maybe help make a difference in the real world. I would like online worlds to be places of identity exploration where we come to know ourselves better, right? Um, you know, they're, they're really, uh, they're not just a public square, but a lab for experimentation, right? But they're also a place of escape, and I don't denigrate escape. I think escape is important and valuable. Um, and without that escape, that self-exploration can't really happen, right? So, uh, you know, at the high level, that's our philosophical mission. In terms of what that means, in terms of what we're building, right? Um, first is we want to make online worlds uh, actually work the way the rest of the modern internet does, rather than using effectively a decades-old, very rigid client-server model, right? We want to do something that um, plays better with the internet today. Uh, so many dreams about what the metaverse can someday be are really gated by the fact that um, uh, we've we've essentially been architecting MMOs for quite a while in a very game industry way, if that makes sense. They've been very much structured in the way of they're 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 still structured as if we were delivering a silver platter to your house in a box, right? Um, and you know that's not even the way the game industry works today. 
much less everything else, right? Everything else is much more alive and dynamic. So when we dream of a metaverse, it's super clear that it needs to include elements such as um, on-the-fly dynamic updates, far less reliance on static content, much more on dynamic content delivery, um, less emphasis on the concept of content period in some ways, right? Um, more ability for there to be a two-way connection between players and the game. Um, uh, more leveraging of the amazing power of simulation and the power of the cloud, right? Than, than what we do now, right? Um, you know, I often analogize it to, we keep building worlds like we're doing, building the stage for a high school play, right? We, we make a whole bunch of cardboard backdrops that only look real if you're far enough away. And the minute you get close to them, you go, ah, that's not, <laughs> this is an inch deep, you know, it's not real. Mm. You know, it doesn't have much substance to it. And that limits what developers can do and it limits what players can do, right? And, and that limits the potential of what online worlds can be. Um, back, it, ironically, back in the text days, streaming text over a telnet connection was a fully streaming client, right? <laughs> um, and in some ways, you know, as graphics came in, we've gone backwards, <laughs> right? Uh, there's more right. and more, like, right? We, we stuff more and more in the cache, so to speak, and, and ship it to you in advance, and then it doesn't change. It can't evolve. It can't grow. Years ago, I wrote a lament where, you know, great. We're, we're making these gorgeous, beautiful worlds. I'm walking through a meadow and there's music playing and a forest in the background and bunnies hopping around, but I can't pick a flower. The flowers don't grow. Seasons don't change. People can't change, right? Like we even designed it in so that people can't really grow and evolve. We let you get more hit points and kill bigger monsters, but it's not really set up to allow growth and change in, in so many ways, right? Um, yeah, the dreams of metaverse that people have, the stories that people tell about metaverse are all about growth and change. So to me, that's the big thing to overcome. Right. And in a, in a post last year, you wrote, we have built a metaverse platform again. I know you can't dig into details, yeah. but at a high level, um, like can, what can you tell us about what that means and how that ties into your vision for the future of games? Sure. Yeah, I hope people don't mind if I get moderately techy, right? Um, Please do. Yeah, so uh, specific examples from what I just listed, right? Um, when I have an older car, it has a GPS system where the maps were actually on a DVD in the dash, right? Um that means it's, you know, this car is over a decade old. The maps have never changed. That reminds me of playing MMOs. So one first thing is let's have an environment that allows for streaming down of game content and game assets as players move around in the world, right? Um, and that doesn't necessarily seem that revolutionary until you realize that most games don't do it. <laughs> Roblox does it, as mm -hmm. to pick one example, but most games simply don't. The ability to deliver content on the fly, the ability to say this environment, this map, is not a static handcrafted mesh, but is actually data, and that we're going to have the client parse the data and represent the data to you in whatever way makes the most sense which is different from saying, we're going to decide how you see things. We're going to decide how this looks. Um, so part one of it has to be that the client has to grow thinner. It has to become something that has fewer assumptions about what it is connecting to. And typically those assumptions come in the form of, mostly in the form of the assets and the meshes and the static content. So sending that down on the fly, that's step one to truly building a metaverse platform. Um, step two is uh, driving things more completely from the server, right? That is crucial, right? Um, again, when, you're, when your client has baked in assumptions, right? It's sort of the difference between a browser and an app, right? An app is dedicated towards one purpose. A browser is architected and designed from the beginning to be able to receive varying forms of content and provide varying forms of experiences, right? Um, if you're trying to build a metaverse platform, you have to build that way, 
right? A Roblox client does not assume that you are connecting to a 2D platformer. A most MMO clients assume you're connecting not just to a standard MMO, but to that one specific MMO, right? I often use the analogy that um, uh, way back, way back when in Australia for a while, uh, each radio station sold radios without a tuner dial. Um, you know, and, and so when you got that radio, it could only tune in the one station. That's how our online world clients today tend to work. They can only tune in the one station. Driving things from the server and architecting your clients so that it isn't locked down in that way is also a key element of actually building a metaverse platform. So we have done both of those things. Um, there's a, a ton of wrinkles in terms of what that means because you also don't want to go building a custom server per experience. So that means that your server also has to be fully data-driven, including the ways in which your game logic operates, right? Um, and then for larger scale dreams, you really need it to be a citizen of the web, right? The entire web today, all of our internet that we use on a daily basis is built around a whole set of standards and conventions and games blithely ignore them, <laughs> frankly, right? Um, so if you dream of pulling off things that, frankly, are not that hard and have been done dozens of times, but everybody brings them up, oh, we want to have a live concert, or oh, we want to have an Amazon storefront you can walk around in, or, or whatever, come on, your server should be able to speak web. That shouldn't be like a custom integration. Just speak web, right? Setting up a live audio feed is no big deal. You know, tens of thousands of people do it every day, setting up internet radio stations, right? Like, it's not that whack, right? And yet, when we look at the, you know, especially now that we have so many new entrants into this metaverse space, people are really impressed that they got a, a, a canned audio stream. It's like, come on, right? Like, the first... <laughs> The first full bi-directional interactive live concert, Suzanne Vega did it in Second Life in like the early 2000s. And the audience could talk to her and she could talk back. And, you know, like, anyway, setting up your architecture in such a way that it can actually leverage this giant plethora of stuff that's out there, um, that's also a key thing. All of these things do call for architecting your tech in a way that's very different from how games are typically built, right? That it's, it's not at all the way that engines want to work, for example, the, the, the commonly used engines. It's, it's not the way, you know, it calls for a different networking model than the standard replication networking model that everybody uses, right? Which is why we keep having folks get surprised over wait, you can get more than 250 in a space or think of 250 as being a big achievement when, you know, we've had, we've had four digits worth of people on a server process for literally decades. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's all of those things, right? It really requires you to architect and think about this from the bottom up. Luckily, um, we've done it before because we built a platform like that uh, starting in 2006 with my previous startup, MetaPlace. Um, mm -hmm. And MetaPlace was actually a direct competitor of Roblox's. And Roblox and MetaPlace are actually extremely similar in a whole bunch of their architecture. So it's not that there aren't proof points out there. There are plenty of lessons to be had. Um, we're just uh, observing them and innovating on them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, thank you so much for for sharing all of that. Um, and I, I I know I and many people um, listening can't wait to see more more details about what Playable Worlds is spinning up, how it's going to work, like exactly how some of those architectural differences um, play out. Maybe maybe to to ground it a bit more, a bit less technical, maybe more from like a player lens, and specifically with MMORPGs, um, like. You know, because of all of these architectural differences, like what, like from a player lens, like what are the key tenets that will separate the great MMORPGs of the future from those of the past? Oh, gosh, there's a whole bunch. 
Um, and not all of them are only driven by the tech, but the tech enables features that enable social things. And that's how I'd put it. Because I would say that really the things that will differentiate are going to be social. But it's hard to get those social things without building on top of features that are enabled by tech, right? So um, I'll pick one example that, that's fairly easy to trace, right? Um, in, in most MMOs, you can't have a house. But in the ones that you can, mostly you get a virtual instance. You have an instance of a house. Or, uh, or there's this vanishingly small quantity of houses that the designers pre-placed and said, well, you can get in line and hope you get to claim one someday, right? Why is that? Partly, it's because uh, the tech doesn't really allow people to build. If you look at uh, that, right, alone, what does building require? It requires those things like asset streaming, treating the map as data, not making everything out of meshes, and so on, right? So there, there's a technical underpinning there that enables, hey, we want to be able to have freestanding structures in the world. Now, there are challenges around freestanding structures becoming cluttering up the map because you have limited amount of map. But limited amount of map is also a restriction because of handcrafting everything in the first place, right? So, so there's that. But if you even think about what does limited amount of map mean? I mean, in real estate, that's location, 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 right? Um, so there's social dynamics that stack on top of the ability of building freestanding uh, structures in the world. If you don't have that, then your real estate market is incredibly simplified, right? Because it can't have the variability that exists from location, from traffic, from, um, you know, locality, right? Like mm -hmm. the idea of a suburb versus not can't exist if everybody has instance departments, right? So there's an enormous amount of important social dynamics that are outgrowths of this stuff, even when you look at it at a tech layer, right? Um, now, from a gameplay point of view, if you want to make that super concrete, it means, hey, you can be an architect and design the house the way you want. You can put it to different uses. You can, you know, maybe you can build an inn at the coolest crossroads because you're actually at a crossroads where people walk, right? Like the, the dynamics that evolve from that eventually become things like, wow, you and your friends could found a town, right? <laughs> And now we're unlocking higher order things that are the sorts of things that are in Sword Art Online or, or you know, whatever other metaverse thing you want to go reference, right? But if you if you don't have that substrate, you just can't get there, right? Like there's no way to get there with an instance department. Um, there are many many examples of gameplay things like that that if you don't have a substrate like that, you just can't do. Um, Events is a really, really simple thing, right? The amount of effort it takes to make an event when you have crafted your entire world out of static content pieces is enormous. And you are unwilling to make permanent changes because you it, it's sunk costs that you don't want to erase, right? Um, so what happens to the gameplay experience when events are dramatically easier to make? And we actually know because we can go look at past examples of worlds that had more dynamic structure that could actually provide, um, you know, just not just freedom, but more opportunity for uh, developers to do things on a faster basis, right? Even from a business point of view, a platform like that enables you to update more often, be more responsive to customers, bug fix more rapidly, right? And like from a raw biz point of view, we know frequency of updates is one of the key determinants of retention and therefore revenue, right? So yeah, it has enormous cascading effects, many of which are just right up front. A player can feel them and see them, right? Yeah, maybe I was I was naive. Uh, I definitely am. But uh, I guess I was sort of surprised to hear you say that some of the like many of the biggest differences will be social driven. Could you maybe just share like one or two more? We don't have to go through like the full 
reasoning of how the tech leads to it, but just like a couple more examples of like, just socially, like, like what are a couple other things that could be possible in the future because of all the things that you're building and thinking about that weren't before? Sure. Um, I'll give you a historical example first, because then you can extrapolate out. And that way I don't have to give away too much about what we're doing. (laughs) Sounds good. Way back in Ultima Online, which is now like, what, 25 years old, right? Way back on Ultima Online, it was a big deal that we allowed you to change the clothes on your character. Okay, we were one of the first games on Earth to let you do that at all. But we didn't just let you change the clothes on your character. We also allowed tailors to make dyes, and those dyes could then tint the colors of your clothing. You could re-dye your outfit, right? That, on the face of it, already that implies a technical substrate that says, we want to allow this to be server-driven variables rather than baked on the client, right? It's an example of what we're talking about. It's a very limited example, but nonetheless. The social impact of that that happened immediately, but that wasn't necessarily anticipated, was that guilds would build color-coordinated uniforms, right? That's an example of a social impact that comes immediately from enabling that small amount of server-driven stuff, right? And actually, that's a huge thing if you think about what is the social impact of uniforms? <laughs> like <laughs> They're everywhere. <laughs> we use them all for all sorts of purposes. It has a huge cascading effect. What then, what would go further? That was an example of only tinting colors, right? But what would be required in order to unlock fashion? Fashion is more than color, right? Fashion is incredibly important to human civilization. And yet, you can't do it in most games because you are confined to the handcrafted set of stuff, right? This is one simple example of tracing just, hey, I want to change the color of a shirt. But if you, if you cascade it forward you know, through uniforms, what that means for social structures, into fashion and player expressivity and what that ends up meaning. What does that then unlock? It unlocks all kinds of social structures and commerce structures that didn't exist. And uh, to make it super concrete, we currently build the, the, you know, a huge amount of the free-to-play business today is built on the idea of fashion. It's built on the idea of having distinct cosmetic appearances, right? So in other words, it's it's a primary monetization engine for the industry. And yet, there's no support for it in the first place. Do, do you see where I, do you follow where I'm yeah. going, right? Um, it's actually a, a great example of one of those other economic things I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, you know, what... What we often do as we pursue our monetization models is we're taking things that are by nature infinitely abundant because of digital goods and making them intentionally scarce through fiat, basically, in order to cause scarcity and and, and affect price valuation, right? Um, It's Which is weird in a way. Here we have the Star Trek replicator future and we're saying, no, we don't want it, actually. Uh, We'd rather play Monopoly, (laughs) right? All of that cascades from these initial choices, right? These initial tech choices. And that's a really small example, right? So multiply that out to what does that mean if environments are malleable? What does that mean if uh, you have a a richer, more dynamic economy? What does that mean once you have a creator economy, right? All of these things start stacking. There is no creator economy without having some of this tech infrastructure. Because there's no way for creators to put their stuff in, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Extrapolate out. You can see where that kind of thing goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. It's it's the domino effect that it's not unique to games. You see it everywhere. Um, Correct. Too. Like, you know, with cars becoming a thing in the past, like the, the externalities were like, who thought that Walmart, you know, would be one of the biggest winners of, of cars? And that has had a huge effect on society. And, you know, same with, you know, electricity, the Internet in general, everything. So totally understand what you're saying. Those the ripple effects of what might seem 
minor can be super powerful and having all of those things hit against each other at the same time too could lead to, I guess it just means that the creative surface area of what's possible and enables people to do is also um, pretty exciting and, too. So Yes. And from a gameplay point of view, that's also more surface for fun. Okay. I, yeah. I, I don't think we should lose sight of that, right? Um, if, if you go back to the roots, it basically said the only way to have fun is kill things. Which, you know, that's a, it's a pretty horrifyingly <laughs> narrow view of the world, right? And then it's like actually killing things and helping your your, your friends, right? Which is a, a nice addition, but we gain healing and we gain things like that. And then it's, oh, actually, you know, it, it and, you know, there was resistance. But when in UO we put in crafting, you know, competitors ran ads saying, why do you want to play to bake bread? Wouldn't you rather slay dragons? Right. But of course, the answer is, as we all saw through the pandemic, turns out a lot of people went to go bake bread. Right. It, it is a thing that a lot of people want to do. So by enabling it, you are you are increasing the surface for fun. There is more fun to be had because there are more ways to play. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the practice of building static dedicated game servers against static dedicated clients with static and dedicated content on the disk or in your game install that's just a proxy for the disk you are predetermining the kinds of fun to be had right you're shipping a radio um, with only that many channels only that many stations mm -hmm. yeah all makes sense all super fascinating um, let's go ahead and switch gears a little bit um, and talk about the metaverse. Um, and so I guess first off, one of my favorite things I read last year was your series on how digital worlds work. Um, recommend everybody who's listening to go check that out. I'll link to it um, in the show notes. Um, and I want to spend some time digging into some core ideas from, from that series. Um, and I think a first good starting point is just the idea of interoperability, which on one hand, as you've laid out, most interoperability isn't even desirable or even makes sense. And we've covered that um, too in places. So I think our audience generally gets that. But on the, the other hand, where it might make sense, it still requires data formatting standards, which create, you know, as you say, a major social coordination problem to make that happen. So my, my question here is twofold. Um, one, in your opinion, what are key interoperability challenges or needed standards in games that are worth solving for today? And then, you know, second related that to actually solve them, how should like leaders across the industry resolve any social coordination problems here? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, eh, fundamentally, when uh, you know this is one of those tools on the tool bench right if you're dealing with social coordination problems there's basically two answers one is you go full democracy and and you you know you form committees and people and and you hope that the 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 best standard which will actually be the best compromise not the best standard ends up winning out through that kind of a process the other is to enforce it by fiat because you control it those are the two ways in which standards get built um in the real world, in practice, um, by fiat is actually the way most of the committee ones work, <laughs> right? Because okay. the committees in the real world tend to be made up of the really big, powerful companies. And the really big, powerful companies say, well, we want to add WebP as a standard, or we want to say this particular mechanism of cleaning cookies as a standard, or whatever. And because they have 78% of the market, it is so. Okay. Most web standards today happen that way, right? Not because of some democratic process. Um, and that's because in practice, uh, power is concentrated into the few who have sufficient market dominance, right? Apple says, flash, die, and it does. <laughs> right? <laughs> Kerpoof, right? On the democratic basis, flash was nearly a standard. It was on something like 98% of devices. But on the fiat basis, boom, it died like in what felt like overnight, right? Um, it was actually a protracted decade-long death. But, you know, it was, it, was, uh, it was done by fiat more than anything else. It was an exercise of power. So 
That fundamentally is the social coordination problem. We have a choice between do we want to do this the democratic way or do we want to let whoever has the most market share decide what the standards are? That's fundamentally what it is. Um, and, you know, I'm a bit of a cynic. Um, the people who run a given powerful company may be incredibly altruistic and idealistic at any given moment, but a company by nature is never altruistic and idealistic, right? It, it's, it's not how a company works. It's how a manager might work, <laughs> right? Companies mm -hmm. don't have such a thing. They just basically want to grow. That's what they do. So um, it's, you know, there's worries about having, uh, you know, basically fiat be the way in which we set these standards. And probably the, the it's, it's easiest to put it by analogy, right? Um, at the last giant wave of, oh, let's have a bunch of metaverse standards, I attended standards meetings back in the mid-2000s during the virtual worlds boom. And I really remember, oh, it's going to be really easy. Let's build an avatar standard. And everybody said, well, most of our worlds can import poser. So the poser format, you know, has been democratically, and the poser skeleton, crucially. And that way, we all have access to the huge library of poser animations. And I raised my hand and said, and when somebody goes to make My Little Pony World? What happens? You are assuming that avatars are in human form. What if somebody wants to make MMO StarCraft, which was a current example at the time? And, you know, it, it's just sort of like, it, it's illustrative of the easy way in which we put blinders on, right, when we start making standards. Um, and that, of course, is, is one of the drivers for, for standard proliferation. People invent a new use case, and the previous standard doesn't work anymore. And that's why we have literally hundreds of 3D mesh standards uh, format, standard formats in use. Um, when you get dominant providers of something, they typically end up developing internal um, formats to optimize for their offering, right? So both Unity and Unreal you know, you can bring in external 3D mesh formats, but internally, they make their own, <laughs> right? Um, that's why you have to build and bake content, right? Is because in the name of performance, they have chosen a particular path. And that path is deeply tied to how their engine works. And as a result, isn't something that you can just easily share, right? So... What that means is that when they say, oh, let's all go use NVIDIA's new format or whatever, they're actually talking about an import step. But it doesn't necessarily mean that assets are easily movable. They might still need baked to be able to move between engines, right? And, you know, baking is not rapid. It's not teleporting from one world to another, right? It's actually, in many cases, hours <laughs> of, of reprocessing the data. So... Yeah, all of those things are, are very real obstacles in terms of the social coordination problems. To my mind, the thing about standards, um, the big thing is to is to first agree on interchange formats. That that's really the first thing that needs to happen. Um, and but that means that the hop around worlds trivially thing is not in the cards in the first stages. It's much more about is it even possible to move this from A to B. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we've seen over the years in the game industry, even those basic interchange formats get thrown away routinely. It's not like we all build and transfer data with Collada anymore. Right. Even though that was a thing. Right. Um, yeah, it's 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 a challenging problem. Um you know, when I think of, for example, where did uh, VRML go wrong? And to my mind, it was actually over-specifying, right? Because, it, you know, if you over-specify, like saying, oh, human skeletons always have this many bones, it's, it's the kind of thing that it, you're closing doors that other people might want to go through, right? So it, that, to me, particularly now, when we're in a period of exploration, we shouldn't be closing doors. We should be trying to open them. Interesting. Um, let's uh, let's go ahead and switch gears a little bit. Uh, we 
you mentioned you were we were hinting at this a bit earlier, but I want to spend some time talking about player ownership and player owned mm-hmm. economies. And you know, as is the the theme here, and with a, a lot of your your writing, the devil is always in the details. You know, yeah. like for what exactly does a player own? How exactly does the economics work? But you know, a lot of the the crazy noise aside, you know, uh, the crypto noise. Uh, I'm curious to get your pulse on player owned assets and economies in general. Um, so I guess you know, simple question to start. Do you think they they should have a place in the future of games? Oh. Uh- there's should and there's can. Um, and I'm sort of in this weird position where I come down on should, but maybe can't. Um, and mm. that has to do with tech infrastructure as much as anything else. Right. Um, to my mind, you cannot disentangle the notion of ownership from the fundamental fact that somebody else owns the server that embodies all of the ownership data. Um, and that, uh, that's similar to the problem that we've always had around what rights does a player have when they're operating inside of a given virtual context? What stake do they have and if it's governance, right? And the answer has always been, to our frustration, um, well, whoever pays the power bill for the server probably has that power. Um, <laughs> you know, Ultimately, they, can, they control the machine and therefore... It doesn't matter what you want, right? Like they can always threaten to destroy the whole thing if you don't go along with what they what they say. That mm-hmm. dilemma has been with us for a very, very long time. And ownership, including the crypto models that are out there now, has yet to find a way around that. Um, you know, we just recently, a whole bunch of, I forget which streamer it was, but I think it's a couple, actually, a couple of uh, streamers recently took down movie catalogs from particular uh, studios because their server-side licensing deal ended. People had bought those movies, and they are gone. Ownership? Or was it a weird lease program, right? Um, Fundamentally, if it's living on somebody else's server, it's always a weird lease program and never actual ownership. That is fundamentally the problem and the challenge. So even if you believe ownership should exist, the level of enforcement of it moves out of the technical question and moves into a legal framework. And that's where it gets just downright weird, right? So if we extrapolate, um, let's say that, no, I bought that movie Oh, but we have to pull it down from our servers. Okay, is there a law that says I have the right of download to move it to someplace else, right? That's a legal question and would require external legal enforcement. I should have right of download, right? Um, If we move over into games, hey, I have this sword. You sold it to me, but you hold it. How do you even download it? What is the player that can play that sword? I can at least import the downloaded movie and play it with VLC. What is the VLC equivalent for using that sword again? And the answer is there outright isn't one. It there because again of the standards question. There is no way to extract that sword from its context. It it literally stops functioning, right? It becomes some numbers in a spreadsheet that don't have value anywhere else. So that's the 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 can you have ownership question? Um, it turns back into a social coordination problem. And it it starts intersecting, especially with challenges beyond, um, honestly, beyond the word ownership. Because digital goods, by and large, don't fall under property law. They fall under intellectual property law, which is radically different from how things work in with physical objects. Um, and we just completely lack the legal framework to deal with it, frankly. Um, so it's illusory, right? Mm-hmm. In the sense that all yeah. ownership is illusory, <laughs> but it is illusory in a very particular way that requires legal constructs to adapt and develop and actually start to support it. Um, And until that time, it's mostly a mirage. 
right? Um, as we have seen with countless examples of services that sold you stuff and then went poof. There's no right. shortage of those, right? So um, does the vast metaverse future involve a picture of ownership? Uh, sure. It should. It's a should. Um, but the can has a lot of can you questions that are not just technical, but right. social and governmental, frankly. Yeah, it's ownership with a lot of caveats uh, <laughs> that I think um, a lot of, you know, with any hype cycle, it starts up pretty idealistic and then reality starts setting into place. So I... Um, I think those caveats will be increasingly understood by more teams and consumers. But yeah, the reality is there. It probably should change how many people think about building and owning these assets. Uh, we could we could talk a lot more about that. But one more um, bigger question for you before we wrap up. I'm really curious to, to hear your thoughts on digital land, which I guess, um, you know, in some ways, you know, many teams are trying to make that a type of ownable you know, asset. Um, and there's a long history of digital land and games. And, um, you know, today, many people are trying to pioneer it in new ways to make it work across MMOs and the broader metaverse. So I'm curious, um, you know, as you look back across your history uh, with games that maybe incorporated land, like what were your biggest lessons learned over the years? And then second, what like, what would you tell teams who want to incorporate land into their games? Um, okay, so it's important to look back at the real-world context of land, right? Land, as famously described in economics and so on, is the ultimate scarce resource, right? Um, and it's because it is not only scarce, but um, the, the, the physical qualities of location provide very natural sorts of, of price variabilities, right? Um, so you, you kind of have a perfect, it's a perfect confluence of scarcity in very large volume, right? We have something that we know is scarce, um, and the scarcity becomes very apparent when you have density, right? Um, and you have, uh, location. Most of the time it doesn't feel particularly scarce, because if you just head out into the boonies, it's like, wow, there's way more land out there, right? So you have this, this interesting tension where you know it's finite, but you often can act like it's not. But then when you get into a dense situation, you feel the finite nature and location matters a lot, right? Kind of the, almost like the network graph of where it is and what it is connected to matters. When you move to digital land, there, you have to question all of those assumptions. That's to start, okay? Um, when we build maps the traditional way, we now have a scarce resource, a finite resource that is also actually scarce, which is not the case in the real world, right? Like there are no boonies to go to if you build handcrafted maps. The boonies are suburbs in waiting because if you are successful, you will run out of land. That's a very different situation from, you know, uh, like there, there's no Australia to go to. There's no, you know, oh, let's all go move to the empty Sahara Desert or whatever, right? Like it's, there is not that. So you start hitting those scarcity constraints way, 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 way faster. And that's, that's a big thing to bear in mind. The nature of incumbency with something like this is, uh, you know, we have other things in games that are scarce in that way. Uh, Veblen goods, collectibles, etc. Um, but land is unique in the way that it preserves incumbency. Okay? And we know this because it was the basis of the feudal system. Right? So the entire feudal system was heavily driven by land ownership and land not getting broken up very much and not getting uh, disseminated to more economic hands as population increased, right? This is the engine behind countless like Regency romance novels. Oh, this is the younger son. Will he get any land or does he, can he make a living, 
right? The answer is no, because it is all conveyed to the eldest and whatever. And so the younger son no longer has the income of a manor house with a zillion tenants who all farm and tithe to him, right? Like that kind of engine. Because basically any uh, capitalism is an accretive system. Okay. So, um, in any, any free trade economy is what happens is primarily whoever was a first entrant or got lucky gets a slight advantage. And then that advantage lets them get more. So whoever got lucky early on and managed to claim the plot of land next to the river in the fertile land, uh, you know, the fertile farm fields, they're going to be slightly richer, which means they're likelier to swallow up the adjacent land. And that's how we ended up with medieval manners, right? That, that is the path. Somebody got lucky early and, you know, think of it as a, as a distribution. Theirs got higher and they sucked away from what's nearby. So it, it's a concentration effect, right? Land really encourages that because what do we do on it? We build. We don't tend to knock down. And particularly if you are in a business of selling, Knocking down is not something you want to make part of the process. We avoid in digital economies doing things like overextending supply lines, requiring maintenance cost, having decay, and so on. And so now you have a scarce resource that by nature is accumulative, and on top of that does not tend to get redistributed through turnover. Those things are all generally bad. They drive the, the Gini coefficient thing, right? That is a rich get richer scenario. A rich get richer scenario with a finite resource means that eventually, not that long, you will have new players who attempt to enter the game for whom owning land is impossible because all of it is owned, right? So um, that dynamic is fairly simple to understand. Of course, in digital, we have the ability to create more land, mm -hmm. right? But just creating new land doesn't break the locality question. Just creating new land doesn't, you know, like it, you know, if, if I outlined basically that there's, uh, there's uh, scarcity, there's supply, and there's location, the fact that you can break one of those via digital doesn't mean that you've solved the other two. Right. So um, among the things that we've run into historically have been things like, hey, we added more land. Yeah, but New York City is there and everybody wants to be near it. So the new land's worthless. Right. And I think we've seen that we're seeing that in some of the current land based economies where people are going, why have this um, in Second Life? We actually saw the inverse. Right. Um, we also saw the dynamic of no islands out in the boonies are worth more than being mm. with the hoi polloi on the continent, right? It was sort of an exclusivity effect. And they actually yeah. monetized on the basis of that effect, right? So, yeah, so the location factor doesn't break. Ironically, digital has shown us that we don't need to have location factor, right? Um, you know, you could, instead of having continuous maps, have node-based graph maps, right? That's how the web works. And then, you know, we don't say that, wow, eBay's website is closer to Amazon and therefore it is more desirable, right? <laughs> like it's not more desirable restate because of that proximity. However, even disconnected node graphs end up with a geography, right? And for example, the DNS system gives us the equivalent of location, right? Good names are the equivalent of being in Times Square and having that as an address. So it's it's very hard to avoid some of these dynamics. The pitfalls, though, are really, you know, ones that everybody should wrap their head around, right? Exclusivity of land is a problem if there are resources attached to it because that will lead to rich get richer. And anybody designing these environments, I know you want to you want to dangle getting richer as an opportunity to all of your customers. But rich get richer is bad. It is anti-fun, okay? And it's, it's a key thing. Everybody needs to understand. You can have this, but this kills your game. Always, irretrievably kills your game on multiple different axes. Um, so all games work to keep it like a this, right? Uh, you can, uh, 
in sports, when free trade phase happens or whatever, like we don't let the winning team get the first draft pick to keep them from doing this. Like it, it, there are so <laughs> many examples. It's everywhere in the world. Okay. And you could take this as an underground argument for progressive taxation. Well, guess what? In a game, you need progressive taxation because this is always bad, right? You won't bring in new people if they don't think it's fair enough, okay? So in the real world, we don't get to choose whether life is fair. In a game, we do. So all of these things, land is really uh, is problematic, right? It, it has very real challenges around this. The flip side of it is, the social value of locality is huge. An enormous amount of human culture is driven by density. Okay, it, it's just a key factor in, well, in getting us everything we like, frankly, right? So as you design, you need to worry about not letting this happen. Yes, causing density. A key challenge with expanding land infinitely is actually you destroy density. And that's a very, very big problem. If you create a system where you say, well, we want everybody to have their own land and everybody ends up with an acre, nobody sees each other. Your game fails, even if you have millions of users, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it, it's, uh, it, you have to treat it as a very unique, special class of resource and constantly be monitoring how it is affecting not just your economy, but your social ties. But it's, it, you know, don't fall in the easy traps because games mm. do over and over. Have a finite map and let players chop it up. Done work. First people in will be the Dukes and everybody else will be a peasant. That does not work. Um, don't allow resources that the game provides to be locked up by land ownership, right? Like, you don't let somebody build, if you have a, an oil well in the game, don't let somebody build a town on it because whoever whoever owns the house on the oil well will always be richer than everybody else, right? You're basically creating kingship whether you meant to or not. Don't just solve it by, oh, well, have infinite space. Your user base atomizes and then you don't get social density, right? Those are all common traps we've seen uh, projects fall into. Yeah, that was all brilliant and well said. And I hope a lot of teams listen to what you just said because I think <laughs> we're at a point in time where... Uh, Many, many should, um, because uh, I've had the the privilege of working with um, Lars Doucette recently. I don't know if you know Lars Raff, but he's done oh, I know a, Lars. a lot Absolutely. of incredible. He's a brilliant guy. Uh, he's done a lot of incredible thinking and work around digital land. And as we've been looking into a bunch of, you know, especially more like blockchain based games that are raising a lot of money through land sales and putting really intense scarcity into effect. Um, and again, kind of digging into that whole ownership question too. Um, yeah, it's just been amazing to to learn about the intricacies involved um, with what might seem minor is actually has huge implications for not just the value of the land or how people perceive land, but how people work with the entire game as a whole. And that's like any type of real foundation to what's important. So, so thank you for um, for extrapolating on all of that uh sure. we are we do need to wrap up right now i could go on yep. and all of this <laughs> forever i know you can too um but I, I guess last just quick question before before i close if people want to follow along with what you and the team are building and your thoughts on game design and building virtual worlds where can they find you sure uh we do periodically post articles on playableworlds.com uh, you can uh, follow us on Twitter at Playable Worlds, and that you know every time we post new content, you can you can f uh, find that there. Um, you can also follow me personally at Raf Coster, and RafCoster.com is where the archive of at this point thirty years worth of articles on these sorts of topics are all archived there. Um, millions of words, so if people want to ever check it out. Um, I post all of my talks there as well, um, including links to you know videos and whatnot. So those are the places to go. Awesome. And I highly recommend it. I'll put all of that in the episode notes. Raf, thank you so much for joining and sharing your wisdom with everyone today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks so much. And oh, awesome. And, and to all of our listeners, uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a like, subscribe, five stars. It would mean a lot. Also, to make sure to check out our free newsletter, Novic Digest. And if you want 
you know, extra premium research like weekly game deconstructions and market updates. Um, check out Novic Pro links and discount codes for all of that, as well as the details of today's conversation with Raf are all in the description. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>